0: New Testament reading will come from the gospel according to Luke chapter 9. And when you have it, please stand. Luke chapter 9, starting with the 28th verse. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James. And they went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter... And his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice saying, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent in those days, told no one of the things they had seen. God's word for God's people, and God's people said amen. Amen. So, I am a big fan of technology. If, it has, if it's powered by electricity and it's doing something cool, some sort of gadget, I like it. And one of the things that I like to watch is when a new iPhone comes out. And I remember uh, around about 2010 when the iPhone 4 came out, And the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, was wearing that same outfit he wears all the time, the black turtleneck and jeans, and he was showing everybody the new iPhone 4. At the time, it was the cutting edge of smartphone technology. I mean, we're now on iPhone 6 and iPhone 6S, but at the time, in 2010, the 4 was all the rage, and One of the things he liked to do when he was showing you all the new things that the technology could do, he'd show it to you one at a time. And he would say as he added on new features, one more thing. Here's one more thing that this thing can do. And in 2010, the one more thing that the iPhone could do was do a special kind of call. And so he showed his iPhone on the screen and turned it on, and his face was on the screen of the iPhone. He dialed the number and then somebody else's face showed up on the iPhone. And what he was unveiling was a new function called FaceTime. FaceTime allowed you to call somebody that had an iPhone and you could see each other's face. It was video conferencing technology made simple. Uh, where I work, they are a fan of video conferencing technology. 90% of my trouble these days is around video conferencing technology because somebody in Nigeria wants to have a conversation with somebody in London who also wants to tie in somebody in Houston into this conversation. And it's not just good enough to be able to talk on the phone with these people. It's not good enough to shoot emails back and forth. That's not enough. They want to be able to see each other's face. So whenever a video conferencing system goes down, they call Johnny. Because they need Johnny to get that video conferencing system back up. Now those video conferencing systems are quite expensive. You can get a base package video conferencing system made by Polycom called the Polycom Real Presence Group for about $8,000 but then you still got to get the internet set up and you still have to get monitors. That just gives you a phone basically with a camera. So you can't see what's going on and you can't see everyone's face. So that is why having that face-to-face conversation, that is why when FaceTime came out, it was so popular. There is something about, even though I am such a fan of technology, there is still something about being able to have a conversation with somebody face-to-face. Matter of fact, having a conversation face-to-face with somebody is usually the test of whether or not it's valid or not. I remember growing up when you would hear certain things about somebody and you wanted to clear the air, say it to my face. If you can't say it to my Face, it doesn't mean anything. Face-to-face contact is important. And face-to-face contact often gives us power. Being able to spend that time with each other is empowering. I will never forget when uh, right about both of our children, right about the time, they were about four to five months, they say that's when they're eyes are able to develop and they're able to start recognizing faces and remembering them. And I knew very clearly how they acted whenever their mother would be out of sight. If they couldn't see their mother's face, there was a problem. Even when they would lay on my shoulder, they couldn't see my face, they'd kick their head back. Make sure I can see your face. I'm saying that there's power In this face-to-face conversation, there is power in this intimacy, face-to-face conversations. And so that's what we have here in the text when uh, we have Peter, James, and John going to what they call the mountain of transfiguration. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mountain, and I find that interesting. Uh, We call ourselves Christians those who want to be like Christ. And we have to understand that Jesus didn't take everybody everywhere. There were some things he did with the multitude. And there were some things he did with the 12 disciples. And then as you read in the text, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some things he only did with Peter, James, and John. I would imagine we'd have a lot more uh, things accomplished in our lives if we didn't have everybody else in our business. We have to think about who our Peter, James, and John are and make sure that we spend time with them. There's nothing wrong with the disciples. There's nothing wrong with the multitude, but you can't be all things to all people. I'm sure if we thought about it right now, we have lots of friends, but we have some of those friends that we only call when we really, really need help. There's, that list is few. So who are our Peter, James, and John? Think about that when we have our circle. They say that uh, you can tell, not only that, you can tell someone's success levels or what they're going to accomplish in life if you look at their five closest friends. One, one motivational speaker said, show me your five closest friends and I'll show you how far you're going to go in life. He didn't say, show me your 100 closest friends. He didn't say, show me everything else because those are the people that you spend time with the most. Your Peter, James, and John are important, and you have to spend some face time with them. Ah, uh, but he takes Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the mountain. And what do they see? They see the Messiah, the splendor of the Messiah. His face shines, his clothes become dazzling white, and he blazes with light. And they see these two men Moses and Elijah, the faces. You have Moses, who was most known for leading the people of God out of bondage. And he became what they called the face of the law. You have Elijah, who was a prophet and was essential to the salvation of the people at that time, telling them what God said and what God wanted to be done. And so he was considered the face of the prophets. And then you have them talking to Jesus The one who hung, bled and died for our sins. And so this is the face of the law and the face of the prophets meeting the face of the gospel. I'm reminded of a particular passage in Matthew where they asked where the lawyers asked Jesus a question and to test him. And they say that, uh, Jesus, which one of the laws is the greatest? Which one of the commandments is the greatest, rather? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then I find that interesting to see that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus in this passage. Because in that other passage in Matthew, when they have that happen, he says, On these two laws, hang all the laws and the prophets. The face of the law meets the face of the prophets meets the face of the gospel. This is more than just a little bit of clothes cleaning going on. This is more than just a bit of face washing. This is something very powerful that's happening. And Moses and Elijah are now appearing in their glorious splendor. And they're talking to Jesus about his departure. And I'll come back to that later. But that's what they're doing when they talk to him. And then Peter suggests, as some scholars say, in his ignorance that they should build Some shelters. Some translations say dwellings. Some translations say tents. Some translations say tabernacle. What they are saying is they put these things down because that is a place where they have experienced God. And they want to remember that place that they have experienced God. I myself can remember places I have experienced God I'm not one that says God talks to me all the time I understand that God talks to me through his word and I understand that the Holy Spirit moves through me but there are times in my life where I can explicitly remember because I couldn't move I couldn't talk all I could do is do what he said and so you want to put places there and remember and so Peter looking at Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. He wants to remember this place. Although he does not realize what he said. And they hear a cloud, from a cloud rather, the voice saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him flash back a couple of chapters earlier in the gospel, according to Luke and some of the other gospels, there's a time where Jesus is getting baptized by John the Baptist and the cloud opens up and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, if you ever want to know about something, if you ever want to know what's going on about something, the best way to find that out is to go to the source. And see, leading up to that time, Leading up to that time between Jesus's baptism to start his ministry and what he had been doing in his ministry on the way to Jerusalem, there were questions about who he was. To the point that he even asked his disciples sometimes, who do you say I am? And they thought some thought he was John, some thought he was Elijah, some thought he was Moses, some thought he was another prophet. They were looking for people. And then you had other people that came before Jesus that they thought were the Messiah, those who won wars, those who were able to do a couple things. They had multiple messianic claimants. Some they even laid down palm branches for and said, Hosanna, Hosanna to. But if you want to know who the Messiah is, if you want to know who actually is the one, the chosen one, the one that's sent to save us, the one, you go straight to the source. If I want to know who the son of God is, the best person to tell me who the son of God is, is God. And so we have this clearing up. He shows himself and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son. The chosen one, listen to him so we get it right from the horse's mouth. Straight. No chaser. This is the one. This is who you need to follow. And because of that, we have this opportunity, this mountain of transfiguration. We have what goes on and we learn about this importance of the face. Why is the importance of the face important? We want to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus did a lot of things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened up blinded eyes. He set the captives free. He declared the acceptable year of the Lord. He walked on water. He fed the multitude with two fish and five loaves of bread. He did a lot of things. And we often point out those things because he's Jesus. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what we know him to do. But Jesus also did some other things. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about what his custom was. And his custom was to go to the synagogue when he read the scripture and said that what had been done is in your fulfilling. That's what he did. But something else that Jesus did on a regular basis was pray. So if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to do what Jesus did, we need to pray. We need to pray and we need to pray often, not just to bless food, not just when we go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, not when we are asked to lead a prayer at the beginning of some organizational meeting, we ought to be praying in everything that we do. When we go to our jobs, we ought to be praying. When we go to school, we ought to be praying. And not just, Lord Jesus, help me. I know I didn't study for that test. We ought to be able to develop a relationship with Jesus. We ought to be able to develop a relationship with God. And we do that by prayer. Because that's what they went to the mountain to do, is to pray. They went to the mountain to pray, and when the prayer began to happen, that's when the transfiguration happened that word in the greek is the deri- same has the same der- derivation for metamorphosis so jesus literally prayed his way into change if you want a metamorphosis in your situation you're going to have to pray and they obviously prayed for a very long time not Just Jesus do it or Lord do it and then back off. We are to pray without ceasing. We are supposed to make our petitions be made known to God through much prayer and much supplication. So if you want that sort of change in your life, you're going to have to pray and you're going to have to keep praying. And obviously they prayed for a long time because Peter, James and John started nodding off when they were praying. So we're going to have to spend some time on our knees we, we like FaceTime, but we also need some knee time. We have to pray. And prayer to the Lord, once you do that, just like Jesus did it, it will confirm who you are. It was through prayer that the, crowd, the cloud opened up and God said, this is the one. Listen to him. It was through prayer that they found out who they were. You know, they say that there's one adage that says prayer changes things, but then there's another adage that I really like, and it says prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you until the things change. We ought not spend some time on things we can't control, so that's why we take it to somebody who can. So prayer will confirm who we are and whose we are and what we need to do. And, though, and the prayer is able to answer and let us know who we are when we do that. And that confusion that needed to be cleared up was cleared up. We heard right from the horse's mouth who Jesus was. And we heard right from the horse's mouth who Jesus was through prayer. Prayer gives us power. The passage that comes right after that. Matter of fact, I read to verse 36, but if you read further down, there's a passage that comes right after that. That's a demon-possessed boy. And the disciples are not able to get rid of the demon. But Jesus is. And oftentimes people preach those two passages together and some people preach them apart. But it's obvious when you read them together that Jesus is able to do what he did. Not only because he was Jesus, but because he prayed. We seem to be, uh, uh, as, as, a, as a group of Christians, the only people that don't want to pray. This is something that has been adopted by other people. They might call it meditation and centering themselves and grounding themselves. And if they're willing to do that, but we're not willing to play, something is wrong. We need the prayer for our power. And this prayer gave us the most reliable answer that we could possibly get. It gave Jesus the power. And it gave gave everybody else the confirmation of who he was. Peter didn't understand what he was saying because he was caught up in the moment. There's nothing wrong with being caught up in the moment. Not even saying that Peter did something wrong by wanting to build tabernacles at this place to remember what God had done there. The problem was that this prayer was not for celebration. This prayer was for preparation. So it's nice to remember what happened there. But this was preparation for what was to come. His departure. Some translations say his exodus. He went to the mountain to pray because he always knew what he was going to have to do. Uh, the text says that he was on his way to Jerusalem because he knew what he was going to have to do. So he prayed. And he prayed because he knew that he was going to have to give himself up for us. So he was praying for that kind of strength. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. But he didn't just pray right then, he prayed beforehand. And that is what we ought to do as Christians, not just pray right when we need something, but develop a relationship wrong. I think about it in in common conversation. If somebody were to ask you to do something for them and you don't know them, are you willing to do that? You might be out of the kindness of your heart, but I'm more willing to give and help people that I have a relationship with than those I've just met. Nothing against the person I just met, but it's just easier. And if it's that much easier for us and we are created in God's image, how much easier would it be for God if we were to ask for things, if we had a relationship with him? And how do you develop a relationship with him? Talk to him. Spend some time talking to him and spend some time letting him talk to you. Jesus was praying and it was preparation because he knew he had to go to Jerusalem. And even as he was on his way to Jerusalem, he still prayed. And when he got there, even as they were cheering on him and saying Hosanna, he's still praying because he knew what he had to do. An innocent man had to be convicted of a crime he didn't commit. Go to jail on some trumped up charges, get mocked. Get beaten. Have a crown of thorns praised upon his head. But even still, he's still praying. Going into the garden before all that was going to happen and asking God, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this will pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will. Still praying. Still praying on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Still praying, still praying on the cross when he says, Abba, Abba, why have you forsaken me? Still praying, still praying. And then still praying when he said into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Still praying because he had to die for us and not a death that was metaphysical, an actual death. Jesus had to do what we couldn't do so that he could save us from something that we couldn't save ourselves from. But he did it with prayer. Prayer on that Friday morning on a hill called Calvary. Prayer at Golgotha, a.k.a. the place of the skull. Prayer on the cross. But that's not how the story ended. Three days later, he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. And because he did that, we have access to the Father. Because he did that, we can avoid death. Hell in the grave. Because he did that, we can go to heaven. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He did it for us. And it started with the preparation. And that preparation allowed him to go on to Calvary. It gave him the power. And it gave us the power for victory. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.